Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. At the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy a command. And that command is to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Then Paul goes on and he criticizes those men who are teaching strange doctrines. He criticizes them for their lack of understanding, for their bad doctrine, their fruitless discussions, and their bad motives. And then he defends his own authority to tell Timothy to silence them. He defends his authority as an apostle. And he defends it against the accusations that he knows that they will throw at him. And how does he defend himself? By briefly explaining the power of the gospel to transform and save terrible sinners like himself. Now I want you to pay attention because we've got this this transition that happens. He talks about himself starting out very bad, the worst of sinners, right? And being turned into by the power of the gospel and the the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, by the power of God, being turned into someone good, not just someone good, but an apostle with the authority to tell Timothy what to do in the church, right? So it's a major transformation that has taken place in him. Now, he returns to that command that he's given to Timothy. So he's, got, he's taken this little side path for a little bit, talking about himself and that transformation that took place. <clears throat> and he returns to that command that he had given Timothy at the beginning, that he is to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, especially about the law. And he begins to explain what fulfilling that command will look like. More particularly, it's going to be a fight. That's the very first thing that he explains, that it's going to be a fight. Then he names particular men who he's talking about in opposing, along with I mean, he's including others. He's not just saying these are the two men you have to worry about, but he's talking about really anybody who teaches these strange teachings. But then he gives examples and names them by name. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at that fight. What the fight is, what's at stake in the fight, And what Paul says to Timothy to strengthen him for the fight. And we'll see that there's this this opposite transformation that Paul is warning about that compares to his, but goes the opposite direction. Where people are being transformed, but transformed into... Wickedness. 
So those are the, the opposite transformations that we've got taking place. And that gives you a clue as to what's at stake with the teachings, right? With the fight. So please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What is the fight that Paul's command is going to require of Timothy? Paul is entrusting this command to Timothy, and it's very clear. He says, it's going to be a fight. It's going to take a fight. Fight that good fight. And that's the first thing to note in asking what the fight is. The first thing to note is that it's a good fight, right? Now, how many of you kids have been taught not to fight? Have you been taught not to fight? No, no hands. Oh, okay. Sam, no? You haven't been taught that yet? Maybe still needs to learn. Being taught not to fight is important, right? Has it been important for you? How many of you adults have found that it's important to learn not to fight? I've I've found that. But here Paul is saying to Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. And so there's good fighting and there's bad fighting. So one of the things that we've got to learn is how to distinguish between good fighting and bad fighting. And so as kids, first you're taught how to fight fair. Right? When you're wrestling, boys, you're given certain rules. No biting, no eye gouges. If you're going to wrestle, you've got to learn to fight fair, right? That's the first part of learning what good fighting is when you're a kid and you're just talking about wrestling. But here Timothy is being told to fight the good fight, and he's just been told earlier in the book not to engage in certain kinds of fights, Right? Not to engage in certain kinds of fights. And those fights are what? Ones that do no benefit. Are you, are you tracking? Those bad fights are the ones that are fruitless discussions and attention to myths and genealogies. That's how he put it earlier. So, 
Timothy is being told there's a way to silence these men. There's a way to oppose this false doctrine. And the way is not to engage in friendly, kind of tense, but but strained because it's kind of a fight, kind of discussions that go on and on and on and on. That's one bad way of fighting. That's the bad way of uh, not fighting. <laughs> right? Endless discussions, endless debates. What Timothy is told to do is to fight with authority, taking the authority that's been invested in him through the laying on of hands, by the prophecies that have been said concerning him, by this command from the Apostle Paul, right? He is to instruct, not to engage in friendly conversation. He is to instruct them to stop. Now, of course, there are other, there are other kinds of uh, fruitless debate, and that's getting all super intense and angry and, and yelling about things that just don't matter very much. Right? Myths and genealogies, it's just like, okay, there's no point. There's not even a point in, in instructing with authority on this. The only point of instruction is stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Stop it. So, what is the fight? The fight is... Good. And there, there are ways of fighting unfairly that, that'll make it bad. There are ways of fighting uh, weakly that will make it a bad fight. There are ways of fighting for the wrong thing that will make it, that will make it bad. So the good fight has to be the opposite of all of these things. Now, when I say fighting fairly, the very first thing that would come to mind is, in our culture, don't name names. Right? Isn't that normally the first thing, is make sure there's no uh, ad hominem attacks. But Paul here is right right in the... passage where he's talking about the good fight and what it should look like, what does he do? He names names. And then he doesn't just name names, but he talks about their character, doesn't he? And about their faith or lack thereof. He he talks even about their motives, we'll see. It's, it's more implicit in this text than it is in other places, but it's definitely there, talking about their motives. So, we've got to be careful to define good and bad in terms of fighting according to what the Bible describes for us not according to our cultural understanding of what conflict is justified, not according to our culture's understanding of what good conflict looks like, right? Which ones are worthwhile? All of these things have to be defined 
by God's word. So what is the, the good fight? He gives two things in this passage. One is keeping the faith. Keeping the faith. What does that mean? Well, it means holding to the true doctrine. Believing and teaching God's word. That's how we could sum it up. Keeping the faith means believing, and in the case of Timothy, particularly as a pastor, teaching that appropriate, good, and true gospel that has been handed down to him by Paul and that is recorded for us in God's word, right? So keeping the faith centers our work of fighting on God's word. It centers it on God's word. And the interesting thing is, that by itself, if you'll simply stay focused in God's word, eliminates a huge number of uh, accidental bad fighting, bad arguments. <laughs> because there's all kinds of things that you can begin to uh, guess about. To just make random guesses. And this is summarized as arguing, we, we talk, we'll often talk about it as arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Have you guys ever heard somebody use that analogy? Arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Ben, how many angels do you think can dance on the end of a pin? There, there's a right answer, and that's not it. It's, it doesn't matter. That's the answer. But 20 was a good guess. <laughs> when, put to it, when put to it on the spot. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't matter. That's the point. It's, it's not of any import for our lives. It does not matter, right? And how do we know it doesn't matter? Because, well, you could say, because it obviously doesn't affect us in any way. But I could work my way back to making some convoluted way that it connects to our lives and would matter for us. But the reason that we know it doesn't matter is because we're given absolutely no indication about anything of the sort in the Bible. And so we just say, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Shut up. And then we leave. If people insist on continuing to fight about it. To argue about things that aren't that, that, that have no bearing on God's word, okay, you say, well, angels are in the Bible. And I say, yeah, so are trees and men and women and all kinds of things, right, <laughs> that we would recognize as not mattering to argue about. Like, how many leaves are on the average tree? Well, there's a right answer. And in the context of studying God's creation, there may be some point to finding it out. But in terms of having some spiritual meaning to it, it doesn't matter. There's no reason for us to be debating this in the context of church, right? Now, these are absurd examples. They're silly examples. But the, but the dancing, that how many angels can dance on the head of a pin is used in as, as an example for this because it's actually happened. 
that people are arguing about it. Okay? Now, when, when the examples are that silly, they're easy to see, they're easy to ignore, they're easy to move on from. But when they begin to connect to us more closely in our lives, something that you've been studying about at school or something, and you start to like get all up in arms about it and get all aggressive about it, you've got to ask yourself the question, wait a minute, is this a spiritual thing? Is this something that matters for the gospel, or is this simply something that I'm up in arms about? You have to take it back to God's word to make that evaluation. Okay? Keeping the faith. Keeping the faith means knowing what the gospel is, what the, the, the proclamation of God's word, what it says to us, what God has revealed to us. And not just knowing it, but believing it. <clears throat> Keeping the faith. You're, if you're going to fight, you're going to be fighting about issues of the faith if you're in a good fight. They're going to be biblical, and they're going to have bearing on people's souls and whether or not they are falling into error or not. Now, I'm, I regularly make a point of saying that if you begin to believe bad things, you will begin to do bad things, right? The connection between belief and works. That what we believe affects what we do, <clears throat> In this passage, we're going to see that flipped on its head. And we're going to see that what we do affects what we believe as well. But right here, I haven't gotten to that yet, and so I want to reiterate my normal point, which is that what you believe affects what you do. And so keeping the faith is necessary for you to keep a good conscience, which is the second thing that he says. Keep a good conscience. What does that mean? It means doing what you know is right. Or you can state not doing what you know is wrong. And both of those come together to keeping a good conscience. Keeping a good conscience. And if you don't keep a good conscience, what you do is you end up searing your conscience. You burn it. You keep poking it with a hot iron until it's all covered over. It's scarred up and ugly, and it's got a nice thick shell on it so that you don't ever feel the prick of doing something wrong. How bad is that for you? Have you guys ever had uh, the bad experience of putting something on the grill and then forgetting about it? And you, or you just leave it a little bit too long and you go out and you get it and you try to cut that meat. There might be something good in the center there, but it is completely inedible. 
It's seared. Overdone. It has a nice hard layer of black nastiness that you can't eat, that's hard to even cut through, right? Is that good for the meat? Nope. Is doing that to your conscience good for your conscience? No. But it's even, it's even more than that. We'll come to what's at stake if you do that to your conscience in a little bit. But first, let's answer. Is this conflict, is this fight simple? It's made up of two things. Keeping the faith and keeping a good conscience. Sounds simple, right? And it is fairly simple, but is it easy? I don't want us to lose track of the fact that what we're defining is what the fight is. <laughs> and so if I say, <clears throat> oh, it's easy. All you've got to do is keep the faith and keep a good conscience, and you're fighting the good fight, you should look back at me and say, then why is it called a fight? Right? Why would it be called a fight if it's easy? It's not easy. It's simple enough to say keeping true doctrine and and doing good. I mean, that's real simple to say, and yet we have to fight for those things. That's what the fight consists of. It's a real conflict. And the reason it's a real conflict is because we face real temptations to turn aside from what we know is right. We face real temptations to hide our sins rather than confessing them. So when I say doing good, I don't mean Christians are perfect. And if you're not not doing perfect, then you're not a Christian. That's that's obviously not true. The Bible, the, the good news that we've been given doesn't say that. Okay? And yet, we're tempted to pretend that we're doing well and that we're not sinning because, after all, I'm a good Christian. Right? Aren't you tempted to do it? And you say, yeah, I'm tempted to do it. And I, w- and I would say, it's not even just because I'm a good Christian. It's because I'm evil and I don't want people to think bad of me and I'm worried about my own reputation. It's not because I have some false understanding that I'm a good person. It's that I don't want, it's because I fear man and I don't want man to think badly of me even though I know God already thinks badly of what I've done. And that's the only thing that actually matters. And so I worry about what man thinks and then I turn it into a theological statement by saying, well, I'm a good Christian, I have repented, and therefore it doesn't matter anymore. I, need, I, I have no need for any help. I have no need to confess my sins. 
to anybody. I have no need of accountability. I have no need of help. You put this big theological thing in place to justify what is actually just your own fear of man. Now, what's going on there? What's going on there is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says that we are to keep the faith and a good conscience and then says otherwise and goes into the what's at stake. But again, we're going to get there in a second. Right now, what I want you to see is simply that we face real hard fighting in this conflict. We must fight against the flesh and the flesh's desires. That's what keeping a good conscience looks like. Putting to death, mortifying is what it's called, the deeds of the flesh. That's how you keep a good conscience. How else is this a fight? Well, you're going to face serious trials in the process and persecutions from others because of your faith. And so there's going to be all kinds of attacks that come from others on the basis of what you believe or on the basis of what you do. And remember how closely connected those things are, right? Really... Ultimately, it's an attack on God. Because if you are keeping his word, that, that phrase combines what he says and what you do. Combines faith and action. And if you are doing that, then we know that you will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so when we have this persecution that comes, it's on the basis of what we have done, because of what we believe, and they hate God. They hate God, and therefore they attack the representatives who are showing and saying to them what God has said. Through our words and our deeds, that's what we are. We are ambassadors. We're out there living our lives amongst strangers in a strange. We, you know, we are strangers in a strange land. So they are strangers to us. And as we do that, it's a fight because the pressure from them is perpetually to compromise, perpetually to be silent perpetually to hide the lamp, perpetually the pressure is to stop giving a good testimony that confronts their wickedness, confronts their false beliefs, and calls them to repentance. The pressure from them is always to stop it. Right? And so you have to fight against that pressure. You have to intentionally say, I am going to say God's truth in love right now, even though I know that they don't want me to. I am going to obey right now, 
I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to obey God's commands, even though I know that all of my friends are going to hate me because it's going to point out to everybody the difference between truth and lies. It's going to point out the difference between obedience and disobedience. It's going to point out the difference between heaven and hell. It's going to point out the difference between following God and hating him. And so whenever your friends are sinning and they want you to go along with them, or they want you to be silent, or they want you to to keep from revealing a good conscience and what it looks like, there's that fight. Right? Isn't that the fight? Isn't that what we're talking about? That's keeping the faith and a good conscience in the midst of peer pressure. And, you know, it's so easy to laugh at peer pressure as adults. Because you just have to say, well, if all your friends were going to run and jump off a cliff, would you run and jump off a cliff? Which is to say, it's stupid to fear man. And now all of a sudden it comes back on you and you're going, wait a minute, I do that. And I'm going, well, isn't that the definition of peer pressure? Aren't Hymenaeus and Alexander men? Isn't Timothy a man? Doesn't that make him their peer? This is a fight. And so you've got to be set that you're going to do these things, that you will keep the faith, that you will keep a good conscience, no matter the cost. And knowing that there will be a cost and that it will be difficult, hard fighting. You are going to be fighting your own internal desires. You are going to be fighting the external pressures of the world. And you are going to be fighting the temptations that Satan brings. And he brings temptations through both of those other things, right? It's a fight. And after giving in to your sin and your your flesh's desires for the 10,000th time and being tempted to just say, you know what? I give up. It doesn't matter. What difference does it make anyway? I guess I'll just believe God and trust him to forgive me and just I'm just going to live in sin. Then you've got to ask the question, what's at stake in this fight? Does it matter? And the answer is absolutely it matters. The first thing we see with Timothy, of course, that we've got to remember is that the souls of the church at Ephesus are at stake. There are people teaching false things that come back to the gospel. The gospel is at stake. What people are going to believe, which means whether or not people are saved is at stake in whether Timothy 
fights this fight. If Timothy doesn't engage in the conflict, these men win. Their, Their teaching is what spreads instead of the gospel of God. And if Timothy turns away from God, we know that he'll cause others to stumble through his own testimony. Forget the other men. How he lives is leading and teaching others. Right? And this is why it matters so much that pastor after pastor after pastor falls into sin. And we don't have to know whether any individual one of them, uh, we don't have to know whether Bill Hybels committed adultery or something like that to know that the name of Jesus Christ is at stake among his pastors, right? And that if Timothy were to turn away, if Timothy were to stop fighting the good fight in his own life, that many would be scandalized. And really the same is true of each of us. Because each of us has people that look up to us and that we are teaching. And that includes every one of you kids that can understand me. You have other kids younger than you that are looking up to you and learning how to behave as they watch you and learning how to speak and what to believe as they hear you speak. And so you are responsible for them in how you speak and how you act. And if you cause them to stumble, you'll be held accountable for it. Much more true is this of fathers and of pastors. But what's at stake is not just the souls of other people. You can't just say, well, you know, I know lots of other people might go to hell because of me, but at least I'll go to heaven. What he says is that what's at stake is shipwreck of the faith in yourself. Shipwreck in regard to your faith. And so here is where we see it flipped on its head, my standard order of saying what you believe affects what you do. In this case, Paul points out the opposite. If you do bad things, if you go against your conscience, if you don't keep a good conscience, then your beliefs will change for the worse. Your beliefs will change for the worse if you do not keep yourself with a clean conscience. Do you see that? Verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So how do I know that he's talking about the good conscience? Well, because the two things are keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Well, it's 
it's, a, it, it's meaningless to say that if you don't keep the faith, then you don't have a faith. It's true, but it doesn't teach you anything, right? And so he has to be talking about the middle thing, the conscience. Not keeping a good conscience is what has caused them to suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. If you do bad things, if you go against your conscience, your beliefs, your faith will be shipwrecked. Generally, people who believe absurd things, and I don't just mean conspiracy theories, uh, I'm talking about spiritual things here, questions of the faith, right? People who believe absurd things have a sin to protect. They have a sin to protect. Now, that sin might not have any clear connection to their absurd belief, But there is a connection. Because that's what Paul says. Having not kept a clear conscience, they suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. So, of course, the easy way to reject this or to make, take the teeth out of what Paul is saying, is to appeal to Reformed theology, to, to appeal to Calvinism, appeal to the five points, and in particular to appeal to the perseverance and preservation of the saints, right? That if you have faith, you will persevere in it to the end by the grace of God, and that is true, <clears throat> And yet it is also true that if you do not keep a good conscience, you will suffer shipwreck in regard to your faith. And this is not a theoretical, hypothetical danger. It happens to real men like Hamanaeus and Alexander. Right? That's part of why he names names. It has happened. It does happen. And you don't have to just look at them, those two names, to know that it's a real problem. You read the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, at the very beginning, he's talking about the people of God and how they were cut off for their lack of belief. And then you go to 1 Corinthians and he talks about how all of the people came out and they all came through the water and they all were at the mountain and yet they were cut off. And then he brings it forward to the Lord's Supper and he says, what? He gives a warning. He says, don't eat and drink unworthily so that you will not be judged, so that you don't die. And so the warnings of Scripture are all over the place. The threat that you have in this fight that you're facing is not the threat of losing face in a match, a contest of who's stronger. You see what I'm talking about? It's not a schoolyard like, well, no, I'm tougher. No, I'm tougher. 
or a uh, in the classroom, well, I'm smarter. No, I'm smarter. Watch me outsmart you. This is not a fight for appearances' sakes. This is a fight that has what's at stake being shipwreck of your soul or eternal salvation. Hymenaeus and Alexander end up teaching absurd things, believing absurd things, because they have given themselves over to sin. You guys know who Alexander is? Alexander is the name, we don't know if this is the same guy, but in Ephesus, in Acts, there's a guy named Alexander. You remember what happened in Ephesus? Everybody flips out and starts screaming for hours on end and the riot is forming because great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul is threatening with the gospel their money. Because all the silversmiths are losing business. So who is Alexander? <clears throat> Alexander is the name of a man in Ephesus who tried to defend Paul to the crowd when that riot was forming. He wasn't very successful. But he's friendly. And Hymenaeus, we find out in 2 Timothy later on, is teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. You guys, this is absurd. It goes so contrary to the gospel and to our hope and to everything else. You've, you, you've thrown away all of the good news. You've thrown away the whole gospel if you believe that the, that the resurrection has already occurred. Okay? And yet Hymenaeus ends up there. And Alexander and Hymenaeus have both been turned over to Satan. They've made shipwreck of their faith, and therefore, Paul has turned them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. The faith of those who are looking to you is at stake. Your own salvation is at stake in this fight. And... The question of whether or not you're going to be handed over to Satan is at stake. If there wasn't enough on those previous two, who wants to be handed over to Satan to be taught things? Nobody. Why? Because when you're learning things from Satan, it's not from love. It's not somebody who has, you know, you're good at heart. Satan's whole desire and goal is, from the beginning, he was a liar and a murderer. His whole goal is harm. Nobody wants to be taught by Satan. And so Paul names them. 
as opposers of the faith. And his naming them does some work at preventing them from harming others. That's helpful, isn't it? So here's what happens. If you don't fight the good fight, you end up like Paul before he was converted. You turn aside from the faith, and you're turned over to Satan. And you fight against God, and you hurt his people. That's what's at stake in the fight. So, we are to therefore fight the good fight, keeping the faith in a good conscience. You must do it. You want to do it. And you say, yeah, I do, but it's too hard. I can't do it. And this is where we get this encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy. And he says, remember the prophecies? Remember the prophecies that were made concerning you? Fight according to those. And what were those prophecies? The prophecies were about his calling as a pastor, that he was called to this work, a statement that this is what he was to do, that he was set apart for this. They come from God. And so what hope does Timothy have? He is to fight by them, it says. By those prophecies. You say, okay, well, that's great for Timothy. I don't have any prophecies about me. (laughs) In fact, prophecies have ended. You do have prophecies. And you have promises. You have the promises and prophecies of God that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Is that encouraging when I say you must fight against your sin? You say it's too hard. And I turn to you and I say, no, it's not. And that is a promise of God. Now you fight by that promise. Does that encourage you? It's encouraging. Does it help you? Does it give you confidence to go ahead and fight? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And so, fighting the fight, it's this ironic circle, you know, that like, it requires you to believe. Fighting the good fight requires you to have faith, to believe these promises. And you say, but I thought you said the fight was keeping the faith and a good conscience. And I say, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly it. Just like I say that if you believe bad things, you'll do bad things. And Paul says if you do bad things, you'll believe bad things. That's how closely intertwined they are. And so do you want, do you want to fight? 
Do you want to fight the good fight? Trust God. Believe that he has given you his Holy Spirit to fight this fight. That he has actually changed you such that you are able. And then fight. Teach, believe, and do these things. Let's pray.